The sea created this land. A long finger of sand dunes pointing into the Atlantic. The Maharese Peninsula. Came down here for a bit of a break. Chance to lie my back in the sun and enjoy a landscape where where humanity isn't always in the foreground. I like the big sky and the ocean surf and the sand hills. It was all working out fine till I gave a lift in my car to a woman who turned out to be a biologist who was fond of toads. I was doing uh, postgraduate studies on the frog at UCG with Kieran McCarthy uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, we realised that there has been very little work done on the toad. And there had been a paper published recent, uh, in the 70s uh, just giving some new information on the distribution. So we decided that uh, we'd come down and have a look around and see what the story is with the toad. So how do you start? How do you, how do you find your first toad when you come down to a place you've never been to before? Well, uh, we came down first in the breeding season, and that's always the best time to locate amphibians because they're always they come together to breed and they make a lot of noise when they're calling, and uh, that's what we did. We looked at, we just went to areas where we knew there were ponds. And listened. And, yeah. Would yeah. we be Would we be able to hear some of that? Yes, we should. Yeah, the weather is very warm, and it's at the right time of the year, at the end of April, uh, early May, and we shouldn't have any problem in finding them. So we could do that this evening, could we? Yes, we could. It's mainly in the evening that it happens. Yeah, they uh, on on warm days uh, the toads uh, call during the daytime, but it's usually in the evening around seven, eight o'clock that they start to call, and they continue on until the early hours of the morning. Well, it's early afternoon now. What 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 could we maybe find uh, at this time of day? Well, if we went to some of the breeding sites, um, we should be able to find some toads in the water. Uh, They'll probably be floating around in the water, a few males, and we should, without too much problem, find a few other uh, toads hanging around the vegetation. And if we're lucky, we'll find maybe some pairs in amplexus. They're in the mating position. Uh, we should also find a few of uh, young toadlets that emerged from the ponds were spawned last year. Uh, they're hanging around. They should be hanging around the ponds, feeding at the moment. And also... Uh, because we've had good weather for the last week or so, uh, some of the toads will have spawned by now, so we should be able to find some strings of spawn as well. Well, here we are, around the corner. So the ponds are just here on the left. I guess this is a Wellington boot job anyway. It's going to be yes. sloppy over there. How far are we walking? Uh, just about 50 yards over there. Just, just, just 50 yards off the road in the dunes? Yeah. Okay. There are two ponds just over there. And with a bit of luck, there should be some toads there. OK, I can hear a skylark already. Yeah. OK, I'm ready. Right. I think 
it's amazing that, that there actually are these ponds and dunes because it's, it's like a Sahara desert with all these sand hills around it. And then you come over the brow of one of them and there's this little wet spot. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're quite deep. They are just below water level, the wet spots. Oh, look, there's, there's something in the water down there. I saw it move. I definitely yeah. saw a movement under the weeds there. Yeah, it should be somewhere around here somewhere. Ah, what's this? That looks like a toad, alright. I'm just catching it. Oh, wow. Look at him. <laughs> They're really not at all. Whoa, he's trying to get away. They're not at all like frogs when you. Whoops! You said him, is it? Can you tell the difference? He's hopped. Can you tell the difference? Between a frog and a toad? No, between a, a male and a female. A, a male and a female, yeah. Well, this looks like a male. If you look at the front paw, there are the two inner fingers. There's a little yeah, black yeah. patch on top of the two fingers on each side. It's and lovely. It's a of males. He's, he's a, a bit smaller than a, than a full-grown frog. Uh, just That's a tiny right. bit, I suppose. And with this brown, warty skin and a, a very pronounced yellowish-green stripe all the way down the back. And underneath is this lovely sort of speckledy... Uh, grey and white colour oh, with these, these fantastic hands and he doesn't move at all like a frog just put him down for nope. a second and let's, let's see goes. what he does yeah. we put himself down their hind legs are quite a bit shorter than frogs so yeah. they can't jump they sort of waddle, they sort yeah. of amble, amble along this sort of rolling gait oh yeah they're yeah. <laughs> ungainly looking yeah, I think they're great yeah. 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 let's pick him up again yeah. Yeah. oh he made a noise yeah, that's, yeah. The uh, males have this release call that uh, it's a warning to tell uh, during the breeding season if a male uh, clasps onto another male by mistake and they release this call which tells the male that's clasping it's a male, not a female. Uh, and you picked it up around the body that time and, yeah, and, just and, and it, gave, it gave that funny funny little croak. Yeah. croak yeah, just but that's not the same as the singing that you were talking about. No, no. Uh, the singing is the, are the males calling uh, the females to the breeding ponds. We've got to release them. But yeah. I, I see, when the females don't make that release call, so he's, he's going off at a rate of knots there. <laughs> There's sort of funny combination of swimming and, and, and waddling. Yes, that's yeah. There's another, There's another one, one over there. Over look, there, just, right? just coming out on that little bit of willow out that's there. That's a big one. Yeah, he is. Go up and have a look at him. It's a brighter one. Too. It's a different oh, colour. He's a different colour. He's much greener. Right. He's, he's much brighter. Yeah, he was hanging around in probably a part of the pond where there was a lot of green vegetation, and they take on the colour of the they camouflage. Change, they change colour, like yes. chameleons. That's yes. right. Yes, that's right. They really are fascinating creatures. And where do they live? What, what, what? What's their natural history? Their their, their daily routine? Oops! Oh, let him go. There you go. <laughs> that was another him, was it? That's right. It was. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, do, do, they're mostly nocturnal, aren't they? They are, yeah. They hibernate during the winter months, and in, uh, around this time of the year, at the end of in April, they come out of hibernation and head to the breeding ponds. And where do they hibernate? They hibernate at the bottom of pools, or in burrows, or under walls, under piles of stones, that sort of thing. So some may be in the water, but others of them could just be burrowing, burrowing into in. one of these sand hills. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, and at this time of year, when it warms up, they come out and go down to these little ponds and yeah. breed and mate. And then what do they do for the rest of the summer? Well, after, after they finish the breeding, which would be sometime in June, they spread out uh, for foraging, for feeding, and they spend the summer feeding. And they can go up to a mile away from their breeding ponds oh. and uh, amongst the dunes, the sand dunes. And what do they eat? They eat, basically they eat everything that moves, that will fit in their mouths, you know. They, uh, they respond to sort of quick, sudden movements. So insects would be the commonest 
food that they'd eat. And they've got this long tongue that they can, even though they don't move very fast, the tongue, they can lash it out really quickly. Their eye catches a movement and the tongue just goes out and uh, wraps around whatever, a fly or... And they do that mostly at night? It's, yeah, nearly always at night. And then they go down a burrow or something during the day? That's right. And they are quite threatened, aren't they? I mean, we don't have a lot of them. That's right, yeah. Well, they're, they're very precarious. You know, their lifestyles, they're very precarious. They're very dependent on the breeding ponds, on the maintenance of their breeding sites. And if there's any harm done to those in terms of land reclamation uh, for drainage, uh, uh, then their, their breeding sites are very vulnerable. And they have um, to be fresh water, these ponds? Well, they can breed in brackish water as well, but it's usually fresh water. But uh, some salinity is not a problem. But, but full salt seawater no, they couldn't, they couldn't no, manage in. No. And there must be a danger, because we're so close to the sea in all these sand hills, mm. that in a big storm that salt water comes over and contaminates the ponds and things yeah. like that. Yeah, to some extent, all right, mm. yeah. Not, but to, I, not I, to speak of golf courses. <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. Um, um, it's, it, they need a particular type of breeding. They need, they need shallow water to breed in. Would you be worried about them then, about their future? The toads, well, I would, yeah, because, I mean, the population, they're just confined to this part, the Castle Gregory uh, Peninsula, and uh, on the Ivor Peninsula near Glen Bay and Lochie Ganavan. And as far as we know, they're the only two, and they're very isolated, small colonies of toads. So, um, and we don't have a lot of reptiles in this country, do we? Of, uh, yeah, we don't, no. Uh, well, we just have one reptile, the, the viperous lizard, and then just the three amphibians, the newt, the frog, and the natterjack toad. So, so if yeah. we lose one, we've lost uh, quite a lot of our... Yes, mm. yeah. And Ireland has pretty poor fauna as it is anyway, so... When you were working on them, when you were doing the research down here, yeah. you were talking about what they ate and so on. Is there, is there any way that you, that you checked that or that you could, you could work out that out scientifically? Yeah. Well, I, I stomach flushed some toads. Stomach flushed them? Yeah. I've uh, flushed the contents of the stomach out of the toad without doing any... any without Doesn't kill the them? Toad. No. no, no, no. It's quite a straightforward uh, operation, just flushing water into the stomach. And uh, the, I, I found just a wide mixture of insects, worms, snails, everything in their stomachs. But there was one particular population of toads that lived near the seashore, and I found with those that their stomachs were almost completely full of sandhoppers. Or those little things that hop about hop, like fleas and seaweed on, right, on the beach. That's right, yeah. And um, I, I thought, well, they must be down on the beach. They must go down to the beach to feed. So one night I took the car and I just drove onto the beach. And uh, sure enough, the tide was out and uh, there were the toads all spread out along the beach. You, away. you found them on the foreshore? That's right, yeah. yeah. What I'm really looking forward to is hearing this singing. I've heard so much about it, but I've never even heard it on a recording. Do you think if we came back tonight... Yeah, I think the weather is very fine, so it's just here then tonight. So Maria had got me hooked on toads. Well, that was okay. Only I did have a bad feeling about my relaxing break. I work in the media and I specialise in environmental subjects. And toads are great, but I had a suspicion they were going to crawl across that important bit of territory which separates holiday from work day. Oh well. And I was really looking forward to that evening. I can hear something over there. Yes, there's a, there's a good uh, population of toads just calling in the pond. Those right. are the toads? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're creeping around the edge of a sand dune here. Um, is it necessary to keep quiet? 
Yes, we want to. I think, yeah, we want to keep fairly quiet. Okay. Will they see us? It's not quite dark yet. Yeah, I think we'd better get on our hands and knees at this stage. Okay. Okay. We're now crawling on our hands and knees through the sand. As we come round the corner, there seem to be a couple of pools there on the dunes ahead of us, which is where that sound's coming from. God, it's amazing. Yeah, there are a lot of toads calling there now. Yeah, certainly are. For an endangered species, there seems to be a fair few of them left here, <laughs> this particular spot anyway. They're very gregarious. They connect together in a lot of numbers, you know, when they're breeding. We're nearly at the water now. I suppose we'd better stop. Yeah. We don't seem to have shut them up anyway. That's the main thing. No, and they, when they really get going, it's hard to stop them, really. So, so what exactly is going on here? What's causing all this noise? Well, the male toads are doing the calling. They're the ones who do the calling. And they tend to park themselves around the edges of the pond and pointing out, oriented outwards. And uh, they're sort of sitting up in the water, calling. I think I can see one over there. I can see a little something in the edge of the water, a little... Yeah. You just, can just see the heads. Just oh, That's what it is, the head. Yeah, just about yeah. an inch or two from the, from the shore. That's right, yeah. So um, that's a male toad? That's a male toad, yeah. Most of the toads that you find in a breeding pond at any time are males, in fact, because the males come to the breeding pond at the beginning of the breeding season and they stay there for the whole breeding season, which lasts for about six weeks. And the females come in drips and drabs and they lay their eggs and then they leave again. So it's mainly male toads that you find in a breeding pond. And the females are, are, are crawling across through the dunes towards all this noise. Yeah, that's right, yeah. They, and why the noise? Well, they, they do the calling to call the females to the ponds and also there's a certain amount of competition going on in the breeding pond between the males as well. Um, the pitch of the call is, is tied in with the size of the toad. You know, the, the bigger the toad, the deeper the pitch of the call. Right enough, if you listen carefully, you can hear that there is quite a difference between them. There's, right. a, there's a very deep one over there that's on the right. right. Yeah, that's right. I think there are one or two calling there as well who aren't actually in the water. That affects the tone of the voice as well. And do the females like big toads? Well, it depends on the size of the female, really. Um, the fertilisation in the toad is external, you know, so the... Uh, how the fertilisation works, how, how good it works, depends on the size of the female relative to that of the male that she's breeding with. So she likes one about the same size as she is? No, a bit smaller than she is, in fact. Oh. Um, she, every, so they yeah. like small toads? That's right, yeah. But not too small at the same time. But every, she, has a way of, she has a way of knowing what size toad will suit her size, and she can tell from the sound of the call of a particular toad. So... Um, when she judges a call of a toad that tells her that toad is the right size, then she can swim over towards that toad. And uh, the males have a very strong, a strong clasping reflex at this time of the year. So um, the male will clasp her when she comes close, clasp her just under her forearms. And then there are what's called an amplexus. And they stay together then for a couple of hours until the female is ready to lay her eggs. And they're, they're fertilised just as she lays them by the male. So you mean to tell me that if we'd been female toads crawling through these sand dunes instead of, yeah. <laughs> instead of who we are, what we would have been listening for is we'd have been listening to all those voices that we could hear across the water there around these ponds and picking out one that sounded just right to be the right size to mate with. Yes, that's right, yeah. Because, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the female wants as many of her, her eggs fertilised as possible, so it's quite important to her. So noise is, 
is really important in the, in, in, in the lives of the toads. That's right. Sound is, is absolutely vital yes, to them. Yes, that's right, that's right. And there's, there's a good bit of competition going on between the males, you know, because there are a lot of males and very few females at any one time. So they do a certain amount of fighting as well and trying to dislodge each other from the backs of the females. So there's lots of activity going on in there. And all sound related. That's mm. right, yeah. The males, if they clasp another male by mistake, they have this release call that we heard. That we heard earlier on today. That's right, yeah. that's right. And uh, how do they make this noise? I mean, it's actually loud. I mean, you'd hear that a long way away on a still evening that's, like this. Yeah, the natterjacks are known for the, uh, the ability, their ability to have their voices carried long distances. Um, well, they, 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 they're passing air over and back across their vocal sacs between their, their lungs and the mouth. And they've got their skin just around the throat. They can enlarge it into like a big balloon. And that sort of resonates the sound. And uh, it carries quite a long way. Is all this noise going to go on all night? Well, it's going to go on for a long time. They, they usually, well, you might, on a good warm day, uh, we, you can hear them, but uh, they usually start around 7 or 8 in the evening, and uh, they go on until 1, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, depending on the weather, if it's not too cold. Um, but they really start up around 9 or 10 o'clock, just as it's getting dark. It's a really exotic, tropical sort of sound. You don't really expect to hear it in sand dunes in southwest of Ireland. Toads seem to be a symbol of ugliness in many cultures. They're something which, if you're not careful, you get turned into by a wicked witch. On the other hand, toads can sing very loudly and enthusiastically. And ugliness also is in the eye of the beholder. But it wasn't until I met Bernie that I figured out that this might be the swan song of a toad. That was a couple of days later, down on the beach. Tony, we're walking up a great bank of shingle here. And behind us there's a, a surf beach, a marvellous surf beach, miles of it, and in front of us there's a system of dunes. I believe this is called a tombola. We're getting into the edge of the sand here. Can you tell me what a tombola is? Well, it's <coughs> the single shingle beach we walked over is the basis of the entire system. It's been generated by the rising of the sea levels after the Ice Age some 8,000 years ago. They finally settled here 
and the bolt to the shingle the wind blowing sand. Which is what we're trying to climb up here and it's quite That's steep. Right. You better go first here. Yeah? Was trapped by the marum, which we are now walking into. This is the marum, this it's thing that looks like a sort of spiky rush. And this, as I understand it, is absolutely crucial to the whole business of sand dunes. Indeed. It's highly specialised plant. Uh, as you can see in this very dry conditions that we have at the moment, it's like a rush, it's circular like a rush. In humid conditions it opens up flat. And this is cope with this in order to help cope with these dry conditions when it enrolls. Oh and uh, here we have uh, a well, sea that's holly. Interesting looking thing. Which is um, it's like a sort of pale grey holly leaf peeking, peeping up through the sand. Indeed. Uh, very definitely one of the interesting plants of open sand dune. And uh, in certain countries like Sweden now very strictly protected indeed. So we've I notice already as we're moving back from the beach in through the sand dunes and this spiky marum grass that the vegetation is changing almost by the meter. But uh, uh, as we get back into the more consolidated dune system, every few meters, I mean, the marum is already beginning to thin out here and we're getting what I would call ordinary sort of grass and herbs and there's even daisies and buttercups growing up here. Yeah, and this is the interesting area because um, one of the plants about to flower very shortly here is Arabis brownii, which is uh, one of our very few endemic plants. Endemic means that it's only found in Ireland, does it? That's great. And this, in fact, is its main national headquarters. So it's only found in Ireland and it's only found in a few sand dunes, so it really is yes, a, it a very rare plant. Indeed. There's a, a dip over there on our left. There's, the vegetation is obviously very different there. Why is that? That, that's a dune slack which floods in winter with the raised water table level. So you mean that would be a pond in, in the winter? Exactly, and can be quite marshy with a rather marsh type of flora. We're getting, we're getting down... separate and very specialised. We're going down into a dip into this dune slack now which is considerably below the level of the rest of the dunes which I suppose is natural if it's a, a, an extinct pond bed. And uh, you can hear as you... As, as you go down, you, we, you can hardly hear the sea anymore, and we're into an area of, of skylarks and grass and something totally different. What I'd like to do really is to go over to, well, this is, as I said, an extinct June slack or, or a winter June slack, and it's now early summer and it, it's, quite, uh, it's quite dry. I'd like to go over towards one that still has some water and have a look at some of the plants there. Could you take me across? And uh, this So what kind of what kind of agricultural practices that um, threatens this landscape, and is it all negative? But it's a double threat: the threat of drainage of the dune of the dune slacks and uh, fertilising of the entire system. It's the absence of fertiliser and, of course, of drainage that made the uh, golf club site so important. Um, and uh, replacing something on that system with a monoculture is itself a disaster because inherently it causes a species crash. The 
absence of fertilizer and the uh, a very important part of the biology of this system is winter grazing by cattle uh, which wipes out the scrub and adds some body to the land so how big is this actually you're talking about golf co golf courses okay i mean as far as i know a small nine hole golf course sort of half size golf course is being built at the edge of the area um, but are you worried that there are going to be more golf courses that this is going to expand have you any information or? yes well unfortunately they're, they're expanding and expanding exponentially uh, two 18 hole golf courses and the four to nine hole golf course are proposed for the mahari system alone and an inch the southern tambola we have um, two further 18-hole golf courses and um, who knows what else will appear there. I think the, the toads at this June slack are beginning to sing a protest song about that already <laughs> behind us there. So you're telling me that two more 18-holes in the 9-hole golf course just in this area that we're in now. I mean, I don't know what acreage a golf course is, but that seems to me to be enormous. That seems to be a huge number of golf courses. Indeed, and the, very important is that it removes the integrity of the ecosystem and it's a very rare thing in Ireland to find a complete ecosystem and a complex one of this nature and indeed look if we're looking here we see down here uh, this creeping willow. Oh it's, it's, it's a little it looks like a miniature willow tree with little pussy willow flowers on it Can but it's only about six inches tall. It's a special subspecies which is confined to the dune slag system you mean it's only found around these wet ponds like the one we're standing in, in the sand dunes and nowhere else? Exactly. And later on it would have beautiful silver leaves, which is, which is what gives this subspecies its name, Argentia. It's a beautiful plant, but if it's only confined to dune slacks, there can't be more than, I mean, you must be able to, you must count those almost on the fingers of, of, of your two hands in this country. It must be very, very rare. Uh, well, not in the sense of being extremely rare, but because the dune slags, slags are under threat, it's therefore an endangered species for that reason. How and long have we got? We can hear the natterjacks calling in the background, and they actually wrap themselves. The, the uh, spawn oh. is actually wrapped around the roots of these as well. How long have we got? Um, how, if this golf course development of the type that you're talking about goes ahead, when will we have nothing left to preserve? Well, I would have thought a few years ago that we had forever. I've learned just how fragile and how rapidly sites can disappear because of the power of machines and the power of simply by spraying, as I say, massive this spraying of fertilizer, which is now happens in the mountains with, <laughs> with the um, helicopters and down here it's very easily done. So are we talking about one year, 10 years, 50 years? We could be talking about just three years, perhaps, for irreparable damage and loss. Maybe I've spent too long in these sandhills. <laughs> Maybe I'm becoming obsessed by singing toads and wicked golfers, a peculiar modern-day fairy story perhaps an allegory for our times. This business of retiring to the wilderness to relax and get a fix on things is all very well, but it's possible to lose perspective as well as to gain it. I don't know. 
Anyway, when I did decide to go down to the pub for a drink and a bit of human company, I found the noise and the lights jarring my senses. And when I got there, they were talking about the same things that had been obsessing me. Now, we set out to uh, set up a local golf club, build a local course, Nine Hole, and we were very conscious of the importance of the area that we had selected to build the course on. And from day one, we acquainted the Wildlife Service with what we were doing. We sought their advice. Michael John here went to the Turf Institute in England and sought professional advice at the highest level. And we were guided by those people. Now, the wildlife people from day one were aware of what we were doing. They inspected our course, and they were quite happy with what we were doing. What about the Natterjack toad? Natterjack toad, we don't have it as a breeding area on our... Um, it's a breeding species on your site. That's right, site. on our site. But we um, have intended putting, digging a few pools out of our site, and um, they would serve two purposes. They would serve to create obstacles in our golf course, and uh, which would, would be attractive. And we also have them designed so that an insect we thought uh, would uh, could breed on them. And just only just four days ago, we discovered that they are actually breeding in one of our ponds. Sean, how do you how do you react? to the, the idea that, okay, this is a nine-hole golf course, and it's only on the edge of the dune system, but that it may be the toe in the door, and that there are ideas that the whole peninsula, the whole Maharis Tombola, may become um, just one series of golf courses. Well, that, that is a possibility, as yet, all we can be sure of is that there will be one nine-hole course on it, but what you say is a possibility. Would it worry you, as a local man? Not if the same care was taken in the construction of, of future courses as we have taken in the construction of this. In fact, I would go so far as to say that possibly the future of our flora and fauna would depend on the golf courses being constructed with the care that we have put into this one. But surely I won't have the same freedom to go for a ramble through the dunes with my dog and look at the plants and the, and the animals in them if, if they're all golf courses. Whether there are golf courses or not, the area is not going to stay as it is at this moment. Uh, you know, progress is inevitable. You're both from from this area. I mean, you're born and reared in sand dunes, or very close to sand dunes. It's the it's the the landscape you grew up with. Don't you feel a little bit depressed at the thought this may all going to be changed and there's manicured greens with Japanese playing golf on them? Uh, that's putting it, shall we say, rather strongly. We are, in, we are indeed concerned with the area. I personally have come back to live in the area by choice. I don't want to see it ruined. But it, it will change by creating golf. We will, first of all, we will enlarge our tourist season. It will be all the year round. We, we don't have frost. We have no snow. So apart from the odd wet day and windy day in the winter, the courses that will be created here will be playable around the year. And do you think the people will be staying around here? I do. I really do. I believe that. I think that if, if it becomes a golfing centre, then it will be promoted as a golfing centre. Mm -hmm. And you will have an inflow of people, not just for a few short weeks in the summer, but around the year. Now, I'm not suggesting that everything we do here by way of development should be solely golf. Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of other things that can be explored. But our golf course is the first collective community effort to tackle the problem that exists.
we have a declining population, we have an agricultural industry that's in the decline, fishing probably has peaked, it will be in the decline in the future. So golf is the first positive step. Now, there are many other things that we can undertake if this is a success. If we get the confidence by creating our own golf course with control, An idle interest in singing toads had drawn me into a local conservation issue about sand dunes and golf courses. But it was only afterwards that I realised that it wasn't a simple issue, and it wasn't just a local one. The men in the pub had a point too. Human beings have an expectation that they can make a living on the earth, but it can't be done without changing that earth. A golf course will change the sand dunes. The toads may suffer. How important is that? That's the universal environmental question. What price can we afford to pay to support a destructive lifestyle? But if I come back to the Maharese in a few years' time and find that the sounds of golf have replaced the sounds that surround me today, at least I'll have a dramatic memory with which to confront the situation and help me try and find an answer to the question. The memory of the swan song of the toad. <laughs>